0: To create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Rita D. Sharma. She's a director and associate professor at the Mira and Ajay Shingle Center for Dharma Studies. And uh, she's chair at the Department of Theology and Ethics at uh, the Graduate Theological Union. Uh, Rita, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me. Pleasure
2: to be here. Pleasure. We're talking about a really, really rich uh, publication, uh, Contemplative Studies in Hinduism, Meditation, Devotion, Prayer, and Worship. And it's hot off the presses, isn't it? It's brand new. Yes, it's hot off the
1: press. Just just, uh, came out
2: out. In fact, the publication year is, is 2021 um, officially, so yep, it's definitely brand new. Um, tell us a bit about um, the, the genesis of this collection. How did this come about?
1: Well, uh, the genesis of the collection is rooted in um, organization um, that is a scholarly society, which I have co-founded, called the Harma Academy of North America because we were tired of um, scholars uh, having no place to discuss the issues on Hindu dharma that were of interest to us, which is ethics, philosophy, art, aesthetics, um, contemplative studies, uh, cognitive studies, and so forth. Uh, Much of the work that was being done at this time this is about 18 years ago when I first came out. Um, I, was still, uh, I was still a graduate student and I was so irritated with the fact that the work that I was doing um, had no space, no academic, no scholarly, no intellectual space to present it that I co-founded um, Harma Academy of North America. And as you may have noticed in the book, our acknowledgments are all to that. So the Dharma Academy of North America, better known as Dhanam, um, acronym meaning gift, as you know in Sanskrit, and it's the gift of a new engagement with Hindu theology, philosophy, ethics, spirituality, meditation, traditions, yoga, and so forth. and. Uh, not just what grandma is doing under the full moon in a remote village in somewhere in the Northeast. Um, with all respect to grandmas, and I love my G too, but we need to look beyond ethnography and into the traditions uh, core principles and pra- practices and doctrines and ask, what does this mean? Um, What does it mean beyond just customs and traditions? So that's when we decided to do a series of um, mini conferences, symposia, on the idea of Hindu practices being part of, of the field. The field is known, new field, not that new. I mean, it's about 20 plus years old Known as contemplative studies. And contemplative studies tends to focus on Christianity and Buddhism, uh, and not all of Buddhism, just basically mindfulness, what, you know, in John kabat Zinn's version of insight meditation. And mindfulness uh, is also a reductionist form of Vipassana. Of so that's, you know, that's a very narrow engagement with the massive traditions of um, contemplative life in the dharmic traditions as a whole, Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism, but it's a complete denial of the presence of, uh, not the presence, the centrality of, of practices of spiritual interiority, contemplation, reflection, insight, in the Hindu tradition. So when we were done with these new um, uh, symposia, we decided to do an edited volume and do a contribution. It's the first of three. The second is already started on contemplative practices, on contemplative studies in Jainism. But this one is groundbreaking because what we do here is that all of the things that even Hindus tend to think are meaningless. Um, The word ritual is usually accompanied by the word meaningless when you talk to many um, South Asians of Hindu heritage, you know? And the thing is, it is of course meaningless if you don't know the meaning. And when you know the meaning, then you understand that it is a path to interior development.
2: So this space uh, in Donham, let's talk a little bit about that and we'll talk about maybe what is contemplative studies and how it relates to Hinduism. But So do you find that since this space was created, uh, are there other spaces where you can do this sort of approach or is it still fairly um, uh, disparate or distinct from from elsewhere at the academy?
1: It's still um, a unique space um, that allows the voice of the scholar practitioner to be heard, um, and that we don't have to—we don't have to cover our voices with a false uh, veil of um, a, a kind of a fake objectivity. Um, the famous philosopher, the uh, German philosopher Gadamer, um, who I am very fond of, made this very clear: that there is no intellectual capacity for the human mind to assess, examine, explore things without prior conditioning coming into um, interference with it. So if I am looking at a phenomenon um, in which I didn't grow up, in which I wasn't immersed, in which which I don't fully understand, uh, or towards which I have a bias because of conditioning, then I can claim to be objective, but it's really a denial of my inability to be objective as a human being. So it's much better, as Gadamer explained to us, to be aware of our prejudgments, to be aware of it, and to allow ourselves to be transformed by the encounter with the other.
2: What would you say about this this distinction, uh, perhaps useful, perhaps uh, misguided, of of edic and emic? This distinction of studying a religion from without versus within, and of course the two are intertwined. But would you say then that that Donham um, uh, that that it somehow prioritizes or leaves space for the emic paradigm? Or how would you, can you comment on that distinction in this space?
1: No, no Donham does not prior and Donham does not leave out the edict perspective, the external perspective. What dhanam requires is that you engage uh, the concept of meaning in the tradition, that, that your scholarship is not purely descriptive. And descriptive meaning, obviously we have to describe everything we encounter, but we don't stop at that because We should not stop at that because we're not journalists. Um, Secondly, when you are describing scholarship, that this is anthropology, this is sociology of religion, psychology of religion, psychoanalysis, all of these Western frameworks are projected on that which you are describing. And therefore, lenses are being projected onto a tradition or civilization, or culture, or society for which these lenses were not made. So you're wearing glasses, Raj, and if I put on your glasses, I mean, your glasses work very well for you, but if I put them on, I'm going to see a distorted world. So what Dhanam seeks is that whoever you are, take your glasses off and try to put the glasses on that belong to the world you're studying. So that go in there and try to bracket out your, you know, preconceptions, pocket them, pocket them for the moment so that you can actually immerse yourself in the self understanding of the people and the culture in which you are immersed in study.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, I think I've talked about this tension on this podcast before it's, it's a fascinating one. I've recently been um, introduced to this this teaching space at the um, the Oxford Centre of Hindu Studies, and it's it's very interesting. It's ultimately an edic outsider perspective. It's ultimately an academic description of religion perspective, but it nevertheless um, goes out of its way insensibly so, in my view, to um, include the perspective of the practitioner to, to understand, you know, we have folks who come there for our Hindu philosophy class from a, a, a um, intellectual perspective, and they find that they're actually changed by engaging in the ideas of Advaita or or what have you. And, and the idea that the, the, the Darshan, that's a worldview. It's so difficult to put the data and the minutiae of South Asian civilization into a worldview that is not, of that civilization. And so uh, entirely, what resonates is, for example, taking cues from the tradition in terms of how to look at a text. For example, you may be looking at it through the lens of poverty dharma versus nivirti dharma or, or whatever it is. Um, so this, this fertile soil of dhanam, you've talked about this. Um, we'll get to the specifics about what's happening in the book, but tell us about con- contemplative studies. Like, what is that? You mentioned earlier it's a, a roughly a 20-year-old field book, But what is contemplative studies?
1: So contemplative studies is um, essentially the study of practices within religions, and now some, some of them have, have flown out of the religion in which um, they emerged and are being used in a secular context, such as mindfulness, which is actually insight med- meditation, which is actually the um, and Vipassana is coming out of the um, Theravada tradition, but it certainly does not capture the entirety of that tradition. So my so contemplative studies looks at um, meditation, mainly meditation, and other practices of interiority that take you within yourself uh, and that take your focus off the external and puts your focus on, um, I won't say the transcendent because we have to include Buddhism and Confucianism and Jainism and so forth. I would say that puts your focus on ultimate reality, however conceived. So if you're a Christian, that would mean God. If you're Buddhist, it would mean maybe Pratitya Samutpada to understand the meaning of Anitya or impermanence. And in the Hindu case, it depends on your sampradaya, on your particular version.
2: So then, so then, this book, then this this rich um, interlacing of, of, of what we may think of contemplative practices in Hinduism, what are the kinds of things that the book is, is showcasing? What, what would be considered contemplative practices in Hinduism?
1: So so normatively, contemplative practices because it was developed out of Christianity, which is fine. Uh, tends to focus on Christian forms of contemplation, um, Christian forms of meditation and so on, and particularly Catholic, actually, uh, because my Protestant colleagues say, well, no, there's no contemplative studies in Protestantism. I would actually disagree with them because um, intensive prayer is, is a contemplative practice. So, coming into Hinduism, the question is what is meditation? And what is meditation in, in the context of Hinduism? So, we, when you are meditating on your breath or um, when you are chanting a prayer, then Christian contemplative practice or the contemplative studies that have arisen out of Christianity and Buddhism uh, to a minor extent would say, yes, that's contemplative practice. But in the meditation, is this, the book argues that when we do puja, when we do sadhana of any sort, japa, when we do Akhanda Ramayana, Akhanda Gita, but um, all of this is meditation. Um, because you're, when you're doing this, your mind is meant to be completely focused on that object of your meditation. When we do our personal rituals, for example, um, pushtimarg Marg is um, a Hindu, Vaishnav denomination that uh, gives primacy to the worship of Sri Krishna um, when he was uh, in, in his childhood. And the method of engagement with that moment of his life is to take on uh, Vatsaliya Bhava, in other words, uh, the, the mood of the mother of Yashoda. But the thing is that, uh, sure when this is done i've had um i've interviewed um women hindu women who who do the practices of of, uh, this tradition and their children or grandchildren will laugh at them and say you're playing with dolls i also play with barbie you know um no they're not playing with dolls what they are doing is they're immersing their consciousness in vrindavan they're immersing their consciousness in a transcendent space and time. They are through their imagination and through those practices of engagement with the Murti and engagement with the materiality of the Puja, of the, um, of the ritual of dressing and bathing and changing and feeding um, the Murti. They are in engagement through imagination with Krishna in his Um, transcendent state in Vrindavan. So what I say is that the use of art in Hinduism, the use of uh, the narratives of the Puranas through art, through dance, through drama, through music, through these ritual practices, takes us into that that luminous and numinous space time, that exists beyond the temporal, and therefore it is a contemplative practice of interiority.
0: nbn50
2: to get 50% off. Oh, just for the sake of, you know, engagement and respectful discussion, what would you say if someone said, you know, Rita, that's a really fascinating insight that there's something contemplative, uh, necessarily contemplative about the act of puja, about japa, about all of these various uh, religious activities. What would you say if if someone said, well, you know, it takes a certain kind of person. They might be more imaginative or intellectual or spiritual who would even envision or engage that dimension. And many folks may, you know, place the item there in the ritual and they're operating on the level of just the action. What would you say about that?
1: There's two, there's two answers to this question. The first one is that any practice, whether it's Christian, Muslim, Hindu whatever any practice uh, the, the effectiveness the effectiveness of that practice depends on the mood and attitude of the practitioner so if the practitioner is really thinking about how the Dow Jones is not where he wants it to be today or how his daughter is you know giving him worries because she's living in a state with a lot of fires I mean if, if the person is distracted if the person is doing it mechanically because it's out of superstition, because the, the, the you know, tradition says you should do this or bad things will happen, um, then it's not a contemplative practice. It is only a contemplative practice when the individual practitioner really allows the practice to transform their consciousness and awareness during that time of practice. Now, that does not require um, a degree. That does not require even literacy. You, but it does require, um, you know, if it were in Advaita, it's called Mumukshutva, but you can also call it Um The Buddhists call it the Bodhicitta. You know, all of these are ways of trying to describe the emergence of a determination to know the transcendent. To know the divine, to know the supreme, and I have seen village grandmothers who have this capacity more than people who are, you know, MD PhDs. So it depends on the attitude of mind.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a fascinating answer. Uh, there's much I'd like to respond to that, but for now we'll, we'll sort of keep it focused on the book. Um, the the, the the book is organized in uh, four parts, I believe he has four. Tell us about the different parts and maybe how, why it's organized in the way it is.
1: Um, the book is organized in these ways because, you know, we, there were many ways you can organize this, but we decided to organize it in this particular way because of the, the, cha- the contributions that we received um, pretty much fell into these categories. So I would say that, um, let me me think about each of the four parts. The first part um, is a very simple conception, that is that what we're looking at is trans-religious and cross-cultural. So, Basically, there are two articles in the first part. The the first one is um, by Professor Andrew Ford. It's called On Creating a Contemplative Studies Program in the Southwest uh, United States. And the second chapter in part one is mine. Um, My chapter, On this, other than my introductory reflections, is called contemplative experience and inter-dharma comparative reflection. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm showing the convergences and divergences between Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist contemplative praxis and where we might have the same practices, but the tilos, or ultimate aim of the practice, is very different. So it's an inter dharma um, dialogue in, through this chapter. So the, the title of the first chapter is "Contemplative Practices: um, Cross-Cultural and Interreligious Considerations." And Andrew Ford's chapter talks about those interreligious and cross-cultural. Um, considerations when he's developing this contemplative studies program in the Southwest United States and basically a Christian-oriented uh, institution. Then the, the second part, so, so we wanted to just frame the conversation in a broader context. The second part is called contemplation and yoga praxis. Um I always joke in my Yoga Foundations class, I, when I used to teach it, USC, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and I'm also now at uh, Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, I always say the same thing, that yoga is about love and liberation. The leotards are recommended, not required. So the idea is that what is love and liberation? It's, it's bhakti and it's mukti. So yoga is about bhakti and mukti. And contemplative yoga praxis is about the, the question of bhakti and mukti. So the, there's three chapters in this section. and The first one is on the concept of um, Ishvara Pranidhana, which is a strangely a controversial subject in academics. You have Hindu scholar practitioners, uh, very famous ones, like uh, a Canadian um, uh, professor who has recently retired, T.S. Rukmini, who agrees with some of her other Western and Indian colleagues, that the Ishwara of the Yoga Sutra and of Sankhya is really not an Ishwara as we understand it. It's not Bhagavan, it is not uh, Saguna Brahman um, is it's really in a way the self, um, the, the supreme purusha, in other words, something you emulate. And then you have the Vaishnava tradition of Pashya or on the Yoga Sutra, commentary on the Yoga Sutra, which absolutely disagrees with that, and they see Ishwara as Bhagavan, um, as Saguna Brahman. So um, The second article, the second chapter in the Part 2, Contemplation and Yoga Praxis, is called Emotional and Devotional Union, a Bhagavata Theology of Oneness. This is coming from the Krishna Bhakti tradition, and it's by Gopal Gupta. Um, And uh, this is a very interesting concept, (coughs) the idea in Bhakti that the divine can be accessed through our emotions. And that devotion really is a form of love here. And that a loving, emotional um, attitude towards the divine allows us to transcend our uh, conditioned consciousness and experience uh, the grace and love of the Lord of Bhagavan. The third chapter in this section is um, Sri Chinmoy on the nature and goals of contemplative practice. Sri Chinmoy is of course a modern uh, guru uh, who spent a lot of time in the United States. It's written by a professor, Professor Kusumita Peterson, who happened to be um, his direct disciple. So she's very familiar with his work and Editing his work, and it's very interesting to have a kind of Advaitic, Vedantic um, a, approach to the concept of uh, the nature and goals of contemplative practice. And then the, the third part um, is on sadhana sadhana as wonder, as knowledge, as, as love. Um, so the first one is about Advaita Vedanta and the role of sadhana in, in Advaita Vedanta. People think that Advaita Veda Vedanta is very rational, very logical, but Advaita Vedanta has very strong practices of sadhana. Um, and we can talk about sadhana a little later. Um, and then the second article is on the instability of non-dual knowing. post sadhana in uh, Vidya bit Raniya love that by Professor James Medeo. This is very interesting. There's a conception that even if you achieve in every couple of Samadhi, even if you achieve the full exist- existential self-realization of, uh, of your true nature, in other words, you have full knowledge of Brahman, even being a Brahmabadan, you are embodied and therefore your knowledge um, has to be nurtured, nourished, and cultivated, so that it does not, you know, become unstable. The um, the thing is that uh, that it's interesting. It reminds me of a book by Jack Cornfield, a book that has not received much attention, and the name of the book. Um, Jack Kornfield is of course, one of the founders of uh, insight meditation. And Jack Kornfield's book was called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. In other words, um, that ecstasy doesn't stay, that the gnosis of non-dual knowing doesn't stay. And then we have to come back to our lives. Well, the practices, the post-gnosis practices in Advaita Veda vedanta um, allow for the retention of the knowledge for the st- stabilization of that knowledge of that knowing you know it's its transcendent knowledge so it's, that's why the word gnosis is used and then the third article Sri vidya Shri vidya shakta model of esoteric sadhana of the sri chakra the So this is coming out of tantric shaktism, and the the meditation on the Sri Chakra is an esoteric practice. All those Sri Chakras everywhere, you know, every Hindu grocery store seems to have one, but the meditation on that, that is coming out of tantra is what I would call the Shukshma meditation. And I categorize all Hindu practices, principles, and phenomena in three levels, three levels of approach. One is external, one is internal, and one is um, esoteric in, in English. And by external, I don't mean etic, that is an outsider studying it. I mean, even a Hindu doing it without proper knowledge and proper training. And in Sanskrit, I would say this is a stula, and gross, shukshma, subtle, and guiha or secret, esoteric. These are the levels of engagement with any of our any of our practices and principles. The final um, the, the fourth article in this section on sadhana is the body and wonder and tantra by Larly Bruneki. And it's very interesting because we talk the Tantra is very interested in embodied practice and uh, there's a misunderstanding in large parts of the Hindu community, not to mention the Western world about what Tantra is, but better scholarship on Tantra is clarifying uh, what it is and Tantra has influenced all of Hinduism and you can find Tantric elements way back in, say, um, the Vedas and the some of the Veda and, and other parts. And then the final article in this section, the final chapter is Semiotics and Elocution in Gauriya Vaishnava Sadhana. And uh, there's a lot to be said about that. Gauriya Vaishnava Sadhana is very complex. And it you know, it's uh, in the West, you know, it's called Hare Krishna, which is very rude. It's like calling Christianity the hallelujahs. Um, you know, or calling Muslims the Allahu Akbar's, um, you know, because Hare Krishna is a maha mantra for the Borea Vaishnavas, it's a half a millennial tradition. And uh, the tradition is, has developed the first comprehensive psychology of emotions to uh, alter our consciousness. It's something worth studying. Um, and then the, Last section, the fourth section, is called prayer, worship, and ritual, and the first part of that is written by Professor Ramdas Lamb of Hawaii University of Hawaii. Well, Professor Ramdas Lamb uh, has titled his article, uh, his chapter, "Prayer and Worship in the Aesthetics of the Ramanandi Sampradaya." Okay, so Ramanandi Sampradaya. Is one of the largest sampradayas, especially in North uh, India. And Professor Ramdas Lamb was a sadhu of the Ramnanda Sampradaya for almost a decade. And uh, you know, he he roamed in you know, uh, in those clothes, in bare feet, and he's very familiar what prayer and worship means in that context of being a true yogi, being an ascetic. The ascetic tradition. And uh, Purushottam Ibn next chapter is on the idea of uh, um, mantric effect of effervescent devatas, uh, noetic supplications, and apurva in the mimansa, in the purva mimansa. And uh, the final chapter is on prayer and worship through music and liturgy in the the Vaishnava traditions of North India. So, you know, uh, you have here a very, very rich and large um, plate of um, practices and sampradayas and traditions to look at um, for this book. And one of the things that I mentioned in my introduction is that when you bring in variety and variegation in terms of, your, um, in terms of one specific tradition, in this case, Hinduism, um, what you're actually doing is you are diversifying um, the entire field of contemplative studies. Um, because you're avoiding the essentialism that has crept into this very important field, uh, which looks at a human endeavor to be in touch with the divine, to be in touch with the ultimate.
2: Certainly a, a, a rich, rich array of um, of contributions in their own right. And together they really, they, they sort of, well, at very least, perhaps expand the boundaries of what we think of as contemplative studies, um, not, not only in terms of including the Hindu world, but also in terms of what one might think of as a contemplative practice. So it's, it's uh, this volume is doing a lot, isn't it? What would you say, what, would you say um, what are the subfields implicated? And what do you think the volume does for, for scholarship?
1: Well, um, so this volume marks the, the very first wide ranging and multivocal academic survey of the major types and categories of Hindu contemplative practices. And as I said, from a breadth of scholarly viewpoints, they reflect both the variety, the, the variegation, the diversity in types of contemplative practices within Hinduism. And they also use the Hindu internal hermeneutical perspectives, the internal lenses, what we were talking about earlier, for expanding the concept of contemplation beyond definitions that, though incrementally being enriched by content from Buddhism, are still normatively constrained by Christian understandings of this concept. So part of the reason that the field remains fairly unrepresentative of the breadth of uh, religious lives, let's say across cultures, lies in the lack of this kind of academic work from scholars of diverse religions on the subject of contemplative studies within their tradition. So when we started, I was first about to write a book on contemplative studies in Hinduism. And then I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to include these diverse voices because you will have depth in each of those chapters. And so that's why I started that series of symposia. Um, And then contemplative studies as a discipline. uh, It can be approached by uh, several avenues. You can approach it by a rigorous focus on religious practices of contemplation, their history, their function within the context of one or more traditions, spiritual traditions. The second way is that the secular and interdisciplinary field of the study and the application of contemplative practice and experience. And this might include methods extracted from religions or developed in engagements with other areas of inquiry, uh, like art and um, aesthetics and so on and so forth. And the the third way is the neuroscientific approach. That analyzes the effects of contemplation and tries to tell us that it's really, you know, what the neurobiological, uh, the neurobiological, neuroscientific approaches are very interesting because they have studied um, things as diverse as a transcendental meditation, Catholic prayer, Buddhist um, mindfulness practices, and so on. And they're finding you're finding that the the consciousness itself is affected by these practices. So I had recently um, posted on um, social media an article from the National Institutes of Health in the United States that talks about the necessity for neuroscience to rethink what consciousness is because of the studies coming out of uh, the neuroscientific study of con- contemplation, and then the fourth approved, the fourth issue out of uh, exploring these things is the study and therapeutic application in the health sciences. Um, as you know, mindfulness now is being used in all manner of health science fields. The problem with it, however. Is that you know the problem of reductionism and essentialism, um, erasure of origins, deracination, cutting it off from its roots, and finally uh, perhaps a distortion. So there's a danger in that. But at the same time, you know, if there's therapeutic applications and you're a physician, you might want to you know look at that. So <clears throat> finally, there are many programs, and in fact, uh, I'm working on a project. Which, might, which is looking into development of a program, which is transdisciplinary. It's called transdisciplinary research methodology. That is, it's not interdisciplinary. You're going beyond the disciplines to look at this a fascinating um, phenomenon. And it integrates um, psychology, social sciences, neurobiology, organizational applications, social science, you know, a wide array, not to mention philosophy, Theology, ethics, and so forth. But, you know, whichever way contemplative studies is approached, it makes space for direct personal experience with specific forms of practice. And in this way, it challenges the denial of embodied experience and subjectivity within much of not just academic discourse, but scientific discourse. And it brings the issue. Of religious adherence in religious studies into higher relief. So, um, you know, this, this is what we're trying to do that uh, the Hindu world of contemplative praxis also offers all of these elements that we spoke about, um, such as the numerous forms and types of personal daily prayers. Um, Vocal prayer, meditation, contemplative prayer, liturgy, um, meditation in terms of breath, focusing on breath or focusing on mantra. But beyond that, I think what is more more important um, is that the aim of our volume is to broaden our lens on, on the concept of contemplation by introducing the very, very rich culture of meditative communion, devotion, and spiritual development information, um, and formation, and psychology of emotion within the Hindu ethos, with its variegation and expansive, you know, med- four millennia-old history of deliberation on what constitutes meditative practices and why, what what is meditative practice and why is it so. And the, so the first question that comes to mind uh, for this book is what makes a religious act a contemplative act? And contemplative practice is a shared category you know, across many traditions. But the idea here is that, is it a practice that transforms awareness? Is it a practice in the Hindu the world, you know, this is the, these are the questions one asks, is it a practice that creates a continuity between human life and the supreme reality, however conceived? So, the, you know, we're trying to do a lot of things and I would venture to say that contemplative practice is one of the sacred threads that weaves through the Hindu world's very rich multiplicity and creates coherence and consistency. Because, you know, um, I'm going to give you a very brief story of that, importance of that. And this forms, in this contemplative praxis, which is like this sacred thread of coherence and consistency throughout the Hindu tradition. It forms the connective tissue that knits together not only religious practice as common ground, but also I would say the shared conception of the plane of narrative theology. Now, what do I mean by narrative theology? I I am talking about the Puranas. The Puranas are um, diminished by Western scholarship for 200 years as mythology and Hindus have internalized that. These are fairy tales, they, they say. Why should we look at fairy tales? Well, they're not fairy tales. They are very complex parables and narrative theology, and they are meant to be experienced through aesthetic, dramatic, performative action in transcendent space-time, or transcendent time as I say, and imagined space. And This collective understanding is expressed aesthetically through the visual and material culture of contemplative worship, and it's perceived through sacred sound, shabda, sankirtana, mantra, and towards an evocation of very intricate intimacy with the divine. These sanctified expressions invoke for us Hindus the celestial within the terrestrial and can emerge with as much intensity, as I told you earlier, under a village tree as within the carved and sculpted halls of a temple. This is the reason that contemplative practice, whether um, liturgical or any other means, visual, individual, communal, has a central position in all the traditions within and those informed by Hinduism.
2: That was uh, well said. There's a lot there. Uh, one quick note I'll make, I can't resist. Otherwise I would comment on a number of things from misperceptions of Tantra to you name it, to the the Chinmoy movement, which uh, I, I used to frequent their Toronto uh, restaurant, Annapurna, to all kinds of intrigues. Um, James's paper is is quite fascinating. Okay, you're awake in a body, how do you stay awake (laughs) and not go back to sleep by duality? But the one thing I have to touch upon, I can't resist is the power of narrative. Being a a scholar of Purana, epic narrative, Sanskrit narrative, and just a lover of narrative in general, I started off as an English major actually. And there's there is extraordinary power there's a, a narrative text, a mythological, quote-unquote mythological text, or a sacred lore, or even a great work of literature. There is deep, profound, transformative power. Like one can understand their lived experience more crisply, sharply, just to the power of this, quote-unquote, imaginative work. You know, the story of uh, the Devi Mahatmya, the disenfranchised king and the merchant who find the sage, and I mean, it goes on and on and on. And in the modern world, if we allow ourselves to relax into a sci-fi fantasy blockbuster, we may actually have some sort of experience, you know. But outside of that context, we really um, we really have trouble engaging the power of narrative because of the myth, small m, thats that it is a myth. Yes. See? Yes, and then what would that mean?
1: Therefore of no significance. Yes, yes, yes. But you know, what's interesting is that the narratives of the Hebrew Bible, the narratives of um, the the Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, um, and so forth, these are not called mythology. Although, if you if you look at it objectively, you have a Garden of Eden, which is obviously celestial. You have God creating Adam and Eve in what is definitely not supported by uh, You know, evolutionary science, and you have all of these things, but this is not myth, this is theology. But the Hindu narratives are myth. Um, And, you know, uh, this comes out of the colonial context, and I'm right now teaching a class called Postcolonialism, Decoloniality, and Dharma, a dialogue. And in this class, um, it's really a critique of post-colonialism, because we, re- we suggest that post-colonialism uh, states that there is a post-colonialism. Well, there isn't. There's only a new colonialism. Um, you know, I think almost every uh, thinking Hindu has heard of this term, uh, brown Englishman. Uh, created by, I believe, Lord Macaulay, one of the governors of India. is so brilliant, it's so brilliant. Let us train these colonized people to be thoroughly informed by our culture, to be so thoroughly informed by our culture that they differ from us only in their you know, external appearance. Otherwise, they are us. And the brilliance of this is misunderstood. The post-colonialists think that it's, it's over, but their very work proves that it's not over. The, the colonialist leads, the colonialized mind remains. And to decolonize our minds is to seek epistemic justice. We right now, every colonized region, continent, nation on earth, and India is one of the largest nations that was actually colonized um, in terms of a civilization being colonized. One of the largest and most diverse. And what we have done is we have become Macaulay's very nice brown Englishman and we have very little respect for our culture, our civilization, our religious culture, our spiritual culture, the four millennia of civilization, that there's nothing valuable there. Now, the problem is, those who think that there's value there tend to do pseudoscience, tend to put value uh, from contemporary present day uh, ideas and projected onto the past, which is presentism this is not this is not the way to value the knowledge systems uh, of a civilization of a spiritual um, culture the, the, the way to do it is to understand it on its own terms. What is it trying to achieve you know and understand that it's not trying to achieve you know. A contemporary uh, stem and neurobiology. No, it is trying to achieve something very different. And that very different um, epistemology, valid means of knowing, and the product of that knowing stands as a prophetic corrective to our current crises. And this is what is not being um, either noted or understood by people who either um, remain in colonized minds or people who are trying to decolonize themselves by whitewashing the entirety of Hindu history as basically um, Western science rewritten.
2: I I take your point definitely. And uh, for my rather, uh, at times, too universalistic mind, seems to me the problem is uh, this is a very important unique series of problems you present for Indian civilization modernity seems to me that on the globe the problem is is even broader and that it's it's so difficult in this in in this modern sort of western global village that we that we find ourselves in is difficult to navigate and steer clear of fundamentalism you know sort of uh, charlatanism sort of unfounded beliefs and find a path that whereby one can reclaim the spiritual value of a a religious tradition one's owner or 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 even another's and this is this (laughs) this to me is the problem of this this uh this epoch you know all of these ideologies, all of these ideologies, are thrown into the, the, the wash cycle together, and we have this dominant narrative of materialism, and yes. It's, yes. this is a huge challenge. And um, certainly, perhaps it's nowhere more colorly expressed than through modern engagement with Indian religion. Uh, um, it's been it's been delightful chatting with you. Uh, just one very quick question before I leave you for the day what um, uh, you mentioned this is part of a series but so what are you working on now the the, the second volume of this which' another project during yes the- uh,
1: so our second volume in the series <clears throat> is it should be out uh, by the end of next year I hope um, we have all the chapters and it's, it seems like a wonderful volume it's called contemplative studies in Jainism now um, the interesting thing is that our Our book, um, this book, is called Contemplative Studies and Hinduism, Um, but the subtitle is important uh, because what we're doing with the subtitle is that we are bringing in um, prayer, worship, devotion, and uh, of course, meditation. And we are using the same subtitle for our Jain volume in order to point to the fact that these Dharma traditions have, um, are different religions now, yes, but they have uh, shared histories and they have shared practices, and yet their aims and purposes of the same practices, as I mentioned, are distinct, and that's fascinating.
2: This is absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rita D. Sherma, who is Director and Associate Professor at the Mira and Ajay Shingle Center for Dharma Studies. She's also Chair at uh, the Department of Theology and Ethics at the Graduate Theological Union. And of course, we've been talking about this brand spanking new uh, publication, <laughs> Contemplative Studies in Hinduism, Meditation, Devotion, Prayer, and Worship. Um, thank you very much for speaking with us today.
1: It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Rick.
2: My pleasure. Until next time, out there, stay safe, number one. And number two, keep listening. Number three, keep reading. And perhaps number four, maybe contemplate this idea of contemplative studies in Hinduism. And maybe the next time you engage some sort of ritual, whether mundane or sacred, maybe add some awareness. Maybe think of it differently, relate to it differently. Take care.
0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumbaCasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VTW Group, no purchase necessary.
0: where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.